Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And this is our second in a two-part series aimed at shining a light on two of the seminal problems stemming from the C-19 crisis that, in my opinion, are not being talked about anywhere near enough, and that's education and entrepreneurship. On our last episode, number 178, we had best-selling author of a great book called What School Could Be. His name is Ted Dintersmith, and he's a a big-hearted guy with some great ideas on how to turn um, this uh, challenge potentially even into an opportunity. So if you haven't heard Ted on episode 178, check it out. Today, uh, Rob Fairley, and he is a professor of economics at the University of California at Santa Cruz. He's also a researcher with the National Bureau of Economic Research. So I think it's safe to say um, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to the economy. And he's considered one of the United States' top experts on small business. Of late, he's been doing much fascinating research and, in my opinion, very important work analyzing the impact of the coronavirus on small business and black and women-owned businesses. Now, before we get to uh, Professor Rob off the top, I also want to say a deep, deep heartfelt thank you to everyone for um, your notes of support on uh, uh, over email and over the social web. Um, and um, I just want to let you know that um, our family is struggling right now. After a horrible accident, we recently lost my uh, brother-in-law, Michael. And um, they don't make better men than Michael Foreman. And he's a father, and he's a husband, and he's a friend, and he's a son, and he's fucking awesome. And we are trying to figure out how we move forward. So if I haven't gotten back to your note, uh, please forgive me um, and please know how much your love and support means to me and frankly, our family. And, you know, as a side note, um, I've never had an experience of being any kind of a public person uh, before becoming a writer and a podcaster. And it's been a little strange lately because uh, I had to face the wrath of many given my public position that we should listen to the experts and wear our masks. And we certainly lost listeners uh, because of that. And now I'm experiencing the flip side of being a somewhat public person, which is the love and uh, support of many of you as we have dealt with this uh, problem. So I got to tell you, being a public person is very strange, but um, um, the kindness we have received of late um, is very appreciated. So thank you. All right, again, uh, Professor Rob and I go deep on his seminal research on the impact of the coronavirus on entrepreneurial businesses and the crisis uh, that is horribly disproportionately affecting entrepreneurs of color and women. And frankly, I think it's unconscionable that this topic has not been more important, particularly in the mainstream media. If we want our economy to be strong and come back, We need strong entrepreneurial and small businesses. This crisis is affecting those businesses horribly. And if we want equality and justice, we need entrepreneurial equality and justice for our black, brown, and women-owned businesses. And that's why uh, uh, Professor Rob's work is so important. And I think you're going to find this uh, conversation enlightening, empowering, and if you're like me, angering. Go to lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D, to check out the show notes and um, get more on Professor Rob's research. We're sponsored, as always, by my friends at Oracle NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk help you bring data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And if you care about marketing or growing your business, check out the number one marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Now, hey ho, let's go. I've been consuming a bunch of your stuff and your research. 
I find it fascinating. And not only do I find it fascinating, I find it incredibly important because it seems like the areas that you focus on, or at least some of the areas that you focus on, are are not being talked about, not being reported at anywhere near the level. Certainly, I think they should be. And so I have a zillion questions for you, Professor, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, where would you like to start? I mean, I guess I could just kind of give some context for the research that I've been doing. I've been working on these topics about, you know, small businesses, especially racial inequality in small businesses since my dissertation. So for many years, I've been, you know, studying different aspects of it, access to financial capital, impacts of the Great Recession, for example, um, trying to look at what are the factors that determine success or or less success among small businesses. And so I've been working with a lot of the data that the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics produce. And I was able to get data extremely fast and analyze what happened to small business owners, you know, very early on in terms of, you know, what the impacts of COVID-19. So for example, the first real impacts were felt in April. And I was able to get that data three weeks later. And so one of the real problems we have um, as kind of academics and researchers and even policymakers is that often data is just not released very quickly, right? right. It takes a year, two years. So by the time you're writing a report or a paper that provides a policy recommendation, it's already dated. And that's just not, you know, that's just not acceptable with COVID-19, right? We need to know right now what's happening. Um, so a bunch of researchers went out and did their own surveys. And the problem there is, you know, everyone's so disrupted. They're not in their offices. Their businesses might have been closed. So that phone there is not working. Maybe they're answering their cell phones. Maybe they're not, right? Maybe they're right. sleeping. And so what I did is I thought, you know what? I'm going to use the most credible data set possible, which is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which measures the unemployment rate and focus on small businesses. And so, you know, that that's kind of the context for what this new project is doing. Well, and I appreciate your research very much. I think it's incredibly important. Now, you know, you you pick up the news today and you see, holy shit, GDP is down by about a third. Mm-hmm. I, I'm reading that right. Yes, Professor? Yes. It's going to, you know, the, the largest jump that we've ever seen. And I've been around for a while. My memory says in the past when things were, quote, normal, <laughs> If GDP went down a few points in an unexpected way, we would have a reverberation in the stock market that was immediate. Uh, We might have a reverberation in interest rates and other various uh, components of monetary policy. If we had a several point drop in GDP that was unexpected, it would be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. policymakers, business people, entrepreneurs, bankers, et cetera, et cetera. A few a few points of drop in GDP would be a big news, and we just lost a third of the economy. It is shocking. I'm still confused about the stock market. It definitely shows up in the the kind of research that I'm doing. So, for among small business owners, we saw a drop from 15 million active business owners in April, um, all the way down to uh, 12 million. So, three million drop. That's 22 percent. So, a quarter of business owners were inactive in one month. To give you some perspective on that, the entire Great Recession that lasted um, a little over a year and a half, we only saw a 5% drop over that entire year and a half period in the number of active business owners. In one month, in April, we saw a 22% drop. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I study is unemployment. The unemployment rate is just shot uh, we've never seen anything like that. It jumped 15% in one month. And that's a conservative measure. The DLS is saying, well, maybe we're not measuring this correctly because a lot of people misreported how you know their labor force participation. So they're saying that it could be more like 25 or 30%. And that's something we've never seen either before. That's much higher than the Great Recession. So there are some measures that are showing this. It's true. I, I agree with you that we you know, this is just not talked about em- enough. Now, the GDP numbers that just came out, I think that's going to be a real eye-opener. And we are going to start talking about a lot more. I think that reality is now hit, right? And that maybe the numbers that sort of pushed us over the edge in terms of 
okay, now, you know, we need to be realistic about what's happening right now. So to that regard, in that regard, Professor, there's sort of multiple things, but the first two that have been in my mind that have been sort of driving me crazy that I've been very much looking forward to talking with you about. Uh, And of course, I'm not the economist you are. I haven't done the research that you have done, but I've done some reading and I'm trying to pay attention. And so I see two things and I want, I'd love your reaction and to get into it with you. Number one, in much of this discussion about justice and civil rights and police brutality and equality for people, uh, for black people and people of color, for me anyway, there's a giant missing component, which is black entrepreneurs matter, brown Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs matter. And if we want to make a difference in equal rights and justice, part of the solution is empowering entrepreneurship. I got thrown out of school at 18. I had two options, a manual labor life or start a company. And so for me, I think like many entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship was a way out, not just a way up. And so I'm frustrated that we're not hearing more about entrepreneurship uh, in that regard. So that's kind of big point. I would love to drill in with you. And then sitting next to that is I'm very worried about uh, women, women entrepreneurs and our mothers overall. The gals that I talk to who are moms are telling me that roughly they have 25% more workload. Kids didn't do anything this summer. Uh, Many of our kids are not going back to school this fall. And so at least my informal survey of the moms in my life, they've been telling me they feel like their workloads increased 25%. And then I read in various places in the media around um, job loss and um, and small business loss with women-owned businesses and women jobs. And some people are starting to call this a she-session. So I'm just curious whether it's black and brown-owned businesses, entrepreneurship and employment, and the same thing from a, a woman perspective. What's your research telling you? And I, I'd, lo- I'd love to know everything you know about those two <laughs> topics. Okay, well, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, those are a couple yeah. <laughs> of big questions right there. It's hard to be able to just answer them, you know, quickly. Well, the good news is we, we could take some time and get into it. Good. That's great. I mean, these are very important topics. And I agree with you that they're been talked about much less than a lot of the other things going on. I think there is starting to get become more attention focused on the business side of it and the importance of business owners. Not only do they create a, you know, root out of poverty or a, an alternative for income, as you're mentioning. But they also create jobs, right? And so there's been a fair amount of research showing, for example, that African-American-owned businesses create jobs for for other African-Americans. And it makes sense, right? These are local small businesses. They're in those communities. Those communities then um, are where, you know, the employees are. And so that's really important, right? That That's going to be a big aspect of it. And Professor... You know, I've been consuming a bunch of your stuff uh, in preparation for today. I thought I heard you say on, I think it was a YouTube video or maybe something that you wrote that the data shows, and it seems intuitively obvious, but the data shows that uh, Black-owned businesses are are much more likely to hire uh, mm-hmm. Black people, Brown people, women-owned businesses, same thing with women, et cetera. And, and that's what the data shows us, yes? Yeah. So that's what I'm referring to is that you know, Black-owned businesses are more likely to hire Black employees. Certainly, immigrant-owned businesses are more likely to hire co-ethnics or, you know, kind of like the next wave of immigrants coming in. And so, a lot of those jobs... What's a co-ethnic, Professor? Oh, sorry. Uh, Yeah, that's a bit of a technical term. So, if you're an immigrant (laughs) and you're coming from Korea, for example, then you are very likely to hire kind of more recent Korean immigrants who live in your neighborhood or who are, you know, um, not looking to become a business owner themselves and need a job. And so you see a lot of that where it's kind of the same ethnic group is hiring the same ethnic group. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that, trust and language and, um, you know, and and also the community, right? They live in the same community. Um, But there is becoming more interest and um, focus on, you know, this kind of like buying black movement so that's one of the mm-hmm. ones that's really kind of come out of this is there are numerous web pages and Instagram pushes and, and things like that that have 
that have created lists of Black-owned businesses and local communities where you can go and shop. So, for example, um, you know, you can easily pull up one for where I live in Santa Cruz and look at, you know, here are the Black-owned businesses, um, you know, and you can look at it by restaurant or by whatever kind of store you're looking for. And so it makes it very easy to search. And I know that a lot of, like, you know, celebrities are starting to post this, like Beyonce has something now. She even has like a record that she created, or not a record, a song, right, that she created. Right. And she's using the proceeds from that song uh, to help Black-owned businesses. So she's providing $10,000 grants. You know, Magic Johnson came in and put a lot of money towards Black-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses in disadvantaged communities. And then, of course, there's a whole range of government programs out there to do the same. But I think that this has attracted some attention, maybe not as much as what we need, but certainly it's been discussed. Um, kind of switching over to the female uh, question, which I think is a really important one, is there has been some new research, and I'm actually working with a couple of co-authors to try to do a little more work on this, that shows that mothers are definitely taking a disproportionate hit compared to fathers in terms of reducing their hours of work, dealing with children, dealing with home care. And, and this isn't just evidence from the U.S. This is evidence from a lot of countries around the world. And so that, that's a huge problem, right? Women have made so much progress in the labor market, although you know many people have argued it's kind of stalled out recently, but this mm-hmm. is certainly not going to help. This, is, you know, uh, this could be kind of a lingering problem that we see. In my data, like the business owners, what I found is among female business owners, 25% were inactive in April relative to February. That's a bigger drop than for men. So male-owned businesses, it was a 20% drop. So again, you see this disproportionate impact. Uh, you know, part of it was that female-owned businesses are in industries that were impacted more. So they uh, tend to be in personal services, which were shut down, right, because of health risks. Another issue is that female-owned businesses often are smaller scale. So they don't have the resources or maybe as a franchise, the kind of corporate headquarters to come in and say, oh, this is what you need to do to face all of these regulations for staying operating. Or here's how to use your drive-through, like if it's a restaurant, your drive-through more efficiently and effectively. Whereas those restaurants or maybe those small bakeries or whatever, those are not set up as well to do that, right? They're mm-hmm. local. They don't have that corporate resource as a franchise to be able to do it. And I think that's another major, major problem here. I'm just worried that this is going to increase racial inequality and gender inequality. And it's not just going to be for a few months as we deal with COVID, but it's going to be longer term. It's kind of maybe setting us back. And that that's a bigger, much bigger worry. And so if we think about some of the key measures that learned economists look at, you know, of course, there's GDP growth overall for the country and the world for that matter. Um, There's job growth. There's new business starts. There's all the metrics that you use to look at health of small and and more mid-sized businesses. Um, One of the things I'm always curious about is what's been the sort of growth or lack thereof in patents as a as an indicator of some some level of innovation and where's that coming from the best of my knowledge approximately half the patent applications come from uh, smaller or newer businesses as opposed to major fortune 500 types and so as you think about those sorts of critical data it appears the data is telling us that there's a big bifurcation between big business and small business and caucasian owned businesses and uh, businesses owned by people of color and, of course, male businesses. And so could you sort of, is there any more of that data that you'd like to share with me so that I can begin to wrap my head around sort of um, the scope of these issues? I mean, I can talk a little bit about the findings from, you know, one of the papers that I've uh, worked on that's gotten a lot of attention in the press. So what I found is that from February to April, I saw a 41% reduction in the percent of African-American business owners that were active. from Let me make sure I understand that, Professor. From February to April, 41% became in, inactive? Yes. So that means that the business owner did not put work activity into that business, meaning you know they're not working on it. That doesn't mean that they're permanently closed. It could be a temporary closure, but it certainly is telling in the sense that 
if it's 41% for African Americans and it's in comparison 17% for, for white business owners, there's a huge disproportionate impact that's happening. Well, well so, sorry, Professor. So the number for uh, black businesses is 41% and for white businesses is 1717? Yes. Holy shit, Professor. So this is, you know, partly because of the industries. It's also partly because, as I mentioned, the scale of the business. It could also be location, right? There are a lot of factors that are contributing to this. But, you know, it's clearly very worrisome. If these business owners are shut down in April, um, then those business owners are losing income. And they might also be losing the employees that they have, right? Mm -hmm. We know that there's been a lot of struggle with the PPP program and who got it and the fact that, you know, it's mostly businesses that were bigger that had established connections to banks. And those are not like the smallest business owners. Those are often not the small businesses that are owned by people of color or by women. And that's also another problem. And it was, you know, an outrage that we found out that the Los Angeles Lakers got one of those PPP loans for Mm -hmm. small businesses and, you know, and a bunch of other organizations. Now they did give it back, right? There was such a public outcry that they did give the funds back. But it just shows you kind of these inequalities that are that kind of creep up here. Um, and they're important, right? As we were talking before, you know, these Black-owned businesses create jobs for others. They create income for the owner. They're important. They're an important source of, um, of you know, inequality or equality uh, in, in the economy. Yes, yes, very much so. And, and the numbers are shocking and more surprising. I mean, maybe I wasn't paying attention, um, but more surprising than even I would have thought. And um, what do smart economists think about how the next six to 12 months are going to play out both at a high level in the economy, uh, GDP, et cetera, et cetera. And, And then per this conversation, what's your best educated guess as to you know, it's January 1st and we're looking back. What happened with Black-owned entrepreneurial businesses? What happened with female-owned businesses, et cetera? I mean, I think on kind of the positive side, I think there's a lot more public concern now. There's a lot more um, awareness among customers that where they purchase goods and services matters and that that could really help. There's a lot more awareness from private companies, like, for example, Google has a new program to really help, you know, provide assistance and maybe have more contracting to minority-owned businesses. I think there's more awareness of that among foundations and private companies. That's useful. I think on the negative side, I was just looking at this yesterday. The number of cases of COVID is so much higher in July than it was in June. That that that's just incredibly worrisome, right? That this is not going down at all. It seems to be going up. Um, And when are we going to get this to plateau and start to decline again after that kind of initial decline we had, and then it started going up again. And, you know, this, this kind of uncertainty is never, ever good for the economy. That's like the number one factor, right? Is uncertainty creates lots and lots of problems because, you know, people are not willing to invest. They're not willing to purchase. They're not, it just, it just throws this kind of wrench into the economy. I heard also from the the chair of the Federal Reserve Board that he doesn't expect um, unemployment to come down very quickly. And I think he was even saying a 9 to 10% rate, which is the peak of the Great Recession was 10% for unemployment. He's saying that that's likely through the end of this year, maybe into January. That That's a pretty slow recovery. Um, and obviously worrisome. GDP, I don't think we have a good sense of how mm. fast that's going to turn around. I think we're going to see some, you know, really, really low numbers for the next couple of uh, couple of quarters. So there was some talk a little while ago in this crisis that, you know, yeah, it's bad, but we're going to get our handle on, we're going to get a, our arms around this thing, get a handle on it here. And, and the economy is going to come roaring back that America mm-hmm. is just waiting to get back after it. And, and there's going to be this real sort of elbow type curve um, that's going to happen. And, and so what's the curve looking like now? And what do you think 
the curve's going to look like over the next six to 12 months. I don't know. That's what we were hoping, right? For the, the so-called V-shaped recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when is that going to happen? If COVID cases keep going up, it's not going to happen now. It's it's going to take a while. And so instead of it being a V, it's more like, a, you know, I think of it as like kind of a cup. <laughs> I don't think anyone can honestly tell us when this is going to turn around. Uh, I really don't. I don't think there's any economist that knows. I don't think there's any government officials. You know, I think that people are being, you know, extremely optimistic um, and maybe they're right. Maybe we will find a vaccine tomorrow, but it's, it seems kind of unlikely. <laughs> uh, at least that's what, you know, health professionals are saying. Hmm. I do think that once we do kind of recover from COVID, it won't be a normal recovery, like say in the Great Recession that took us many, many years to get employment back up. It will be faster. If there's kind of lingering effects from it, that's probably going to be the case. I think that one issue is customers are shifting over from, you know, purchasing a lot of their goods and services from local businesses and doing it on the internet. And I think they're becoming more comfortable with that. And that can be kind of a long-term restructuring of our economy is that it could turn out that we see a lot more consumer behavior on the internet and less in kind of local stores. And that will have impacts for workers. That'll be a lot longer lasting than what we're seeing in, you know, the next year or two or three, even three years. The other thing I wonder about, I was thinking about this this morning. I got an email from a dear friend of mine who's a realtor here in Santa Cruz. And he was making the point that um, uh, essentially uh, prices are up in Santa Cruz, inventory's down, and sort of in his world amongst the realty community, so to speak, here in Santa Cruz, he's beginning to believe we're, we're, we're on the front end of a, of a societal shift as people, more and more people who are knowledge workers don't have to go anywhere anymore or, or on a much more limited basis, that places like Santa Cruz. I have another dear friend who's a um, realtor in Tahoe. He shared with me, Professor, that even before the shutdown happened in California, his phone was ringing off the hook. Hmm. Um, And so if you look at the area that you and I live in, it feels like, and again, I'm not an economist, but it feels like we're having a move away from San Francisco. Rents are coming down away from Palo Alto, et cetera, et cetera. And moving to smaller areas like Santa Cruz, like Tahoe, where you can still make it to a meeting in San Francisco if you need to go every once in a while. And maybe there's a quarterly mm-hmm. planning offsite or whatever. But for the most part, if I don't have to go to a meeting on, an, on a regular basis, um, kind of F it and let's go live near the beach or let's go live in the mountains. Sort of what, what are you seeing about this trend that it appears to be going on here? Yeah, I think that's you know, this is a really good point, right? I I was talking about this shift in customer behavior that we're all becoming more comfortable, you know? So my elderly mom now is doing, you know, purchases online, (laughs) right? And I wouldn't have thought that, you know, three months ago. Um, Major purchases, like constant purchases. Is she getting good on Zoom and FaceTime and things along those lines as well? She's also doing Zoom and FaceTime. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Another big surprise to me. And, you know, there's definitely some positives of that. She's, uh, you know, she moved here from Canada and she can connect with her relatives and, you know, my family members in Canada. And she hasn't been able to do that, right? Hasn't been able to see their faces in, you know, three or four years since the last time she flew out there. So, you know, there's certainly benefits. And I think that this idea about increased telework or increased kind of remote work is definitely happening and it's going to be a long-term effect from this. I was actually just talking to a friend the other day uh, who lives out in Connecticut and he was saying that where he is um, kind of along the, the Eastern seaboard, but North of New York city, that a lot of the house, there's like a housing boom there also in the sense that, you know, um, what you're describing where house prices are going up, inventory is very low. And he you know, said it sounds exactly like what's happening out in Santa Cruz, where people from New York City want to move out, right? They, they mm-hmm. want to leave there or have like a second home or something where they could potentially remote work remotely and live in a place that's right on the ocean, right? Or at least on the Long Island Sound. Yeah. And so I think it's probably happening in a lot of other places around the country. Uh, it's interesting, though, because, you know, we don't hear that much about it. 
which is, uh, I was surprised by that. You know, we had uh, legendary venture capitalist Mike Maples on uh, not too long ago, and he made an interesting point vis-a-vis sort of the entrepreneurial community in, in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, which is those of us in that world, which is the world that I come from, we've spent the better part of 30 years trying to make bits go viral, right? <laughs> the, the biggest success you can have is a viral product. And as a marketeer myself, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, studying this, thinking about what causes it, why it works, why it doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, many of us have made at least part of our living trying to figure out how to get things to spread very quickly. And the, the uh, we had Brad Feld on recently, another legendary VC who's got a new book out. And he was talking about how the biology words and and the technology words are, 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 are blurring and merging, you know, this sort of. Uh, contagion in the tech world is a good thing. And of course, in the real world is a horrible thing. Uh, and so anyway, long story longer, Professor, uh, what what Mike Maples commented on was people in the technology world started exiting Silicon Valley very early because they understand sort of the exponential power of a viral network and how it can work. And so it it, you know, I talked to my friends in San Francisco and they say, that it's a, quote, post-apocalyptic environment in the city right now. And so am I wrong in connecting the following dots? If that's going on, not just in San Francisco, but in other cities across the country as well. And of course, the civil unrest means, I don't know about you, but I sure as hell aren't, aren't I'm not moving to Seattle anytime soon. And Portland looks insane to me and Chicago looks scary and, and, and. And so... Here's sort of the thing I'm really worried about. If some meaningful percentage of businesses owned by people of color are urban and not suburban or rural, and there's this, quote, post-apocalyptic situation happening where we're seeing unprecedented drops in rents and real estate in San Francisco and increases in rents and real estate in places like Santa Cruz and Tahoe, and I've talked to friends in um, Idaho and in Utah and in Montana, and they all say virtually exactly the same thing. So I, I don't have the data in front of me, but it's it's surprising to hear all of this. And so I guess my question is, how much worse is this going to get for small businesses um, that are owned by and run by uh, people of color in our country? Yeah, I mean, that's another good point is that, you know, what we're talking about in this movement from San Francisco to Santa Cruz or New York City to these very, you know, kind of expensive suburbs along the Long Island Sound in Connecticut is that these are highly educated people who have money, right? Mm-hmm. And this is not, you know, um, kind of the norm. And that's another thing that shows up in the data, you know, if you analyze it is that the individuals that were able to kind of keep their jobs, the least impacts on unemployment or even on like small business ownership were highly educated consultants or accountants, lawyers, right? They were able to continue working. You know, you hear a lot about like dentists had to shut down, but they still, you know, they still have their business and they still have their customers. And, you know, but a lot of like really small restaurants or small shops that you see in in kind of downtown areas, those had to shut down completely. And we don't know if they're going to come back. We don't know when customers are going to feel safe enough to come back to these areas and start shopping in levels to bring them back. Plus, if you're losing two or three months of revenues and you still have all of your expenses, at least on your equipment and your building, your rent and your mortgage, right? What's going to happen in terms of bankruptcies, defaults on mortgages, defaults on loans? That That's kind of another issue. So I'm worried that, you know, we've already seen inequality increase. There's lots of information on that. There's lots of like new research using really, really nice, uh, interesting, useful data to show that. But it seems to me like this is, you know, creating even a further divide, right? Highly educated people can now work remotely. They can work wherever they want. They can kind of improve their quality of life. They don't have to live in downtown city areas as much. And maybe they can live by the ocean, like in a place like Santa Cruz. But that's just not the case right? For most of America, most of America, you know, is, has jobs where that's not, you know, they can't just move that job. They can't do it remotely. If you are, 
you know, working in a Costco, you have to be there to work in that, you know, that essential business, right? That's providing food. If you are, um, you know, have a small businesses that does kind of like cleaning services, well, you still have to do that work, right? It, it's not going to go away. It, it doesn't just do, you can't do it on a computer through Zoom. Yeah. Put it that way. I mean, maybe that's the best way to think of this is what can you do on a computer and what can you not do on a computer? And there are most jobs you can't. Right. You have to be somewhere to do most jobs, right? Exactly. You have to do something physical. You have to be with other people in some collaborative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what percentage of our economy, uh, Professor Rob, is is a service based job? I don't know, but if if you look at small business owners, I I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to say it's at least three quarters are, you know, these very physical things like construction, right? Yep. Again, something that you can't do sitting here <laughs> like you know we are looking at a computer, right? Or, uh, you know, or listening on our phones. Personal services, clearly, you know, these kind of smaller scale types of business activities, restaurants, stores, shops, barbershops, things like that. Uh, they're a huge portion of small business owners, right? That That's kind of like the main area that the exceptions are, you know, the professionals uh, in high tech or lawyers creative types of one sort or another yeah in creative types too but th- that's a relatively small share if you look at the entire country right i, I think right. that we get a bit of a a warped view living in you know the san francisco bay area or even living in you know some kind of wealthy areas in big cities and we don't see like all of these other types of small businesses and what a major proportion of the economy that they represent in terms of numbers in terms of dollars, yeah, you can kind of skew this and say, well, the you know tech industry, these financial industries have a lot of dollars, but that's not people, right? That's that's money, right. that's wealth, that's you know stock market valuation. Is that what we really care about, or do we care about people? Um, and so, you know, I think that that's a huge important distinction. And I've been reading some spooky things. I've seen projections all over the place, particularly with restaurants. Uh, and I'm wondering if if you can maybe uh, shed a little light on this, but I've read things anywhere from 25% to 50% of restaurants are not going to survive this. Do any of those numbers sound right to you? Is that Could that be true? It's possible. As I mentioned before, I don't think anyone can really predict this accurately at this point. It's pretty disturbing that, you know, in the data that I collected, that basically we're seeing this big drop in you know in those industries that that um that represent like uh restaurants hotels barbershops things like that they were hit really hard mm-hmm. and they're kind of you know slow to kind of rebound from this you know it's hard to know what a permanent closure is going to come from say a business is inactive in april and it rebounds partly um providing takeout in may and then june starts to open up shop by putting some tables outside, right? Yeah. We don't know those three months of really struggling. You know, we don't know a couple of things. First, we don't know what's going to happen because oh, we don't have the data for July. We don't, you know, know what's going to happen in the future in August and um, September. And then we don't know, are they going to be able to s- survive that in terms of getting loans or savings or other funds to be able to make up for that lost revenue and the continuing expenses that they face. Right. So I don't think there's any way to say that 25 to 50% of number is correct or not. It definitely could be in that range. Wow. And so, of course, all of this behooves some big questions about, okay, so what can we do about this stuff? And I understand we're dealing with the virus and that's going to hold some of these businesses back and some of our economy back and there's maybe not a lot we can do about that piece, but there's obviously some things we can do. So, you know, I sort of like to tackle it both on the individual level. What could I do as mm-hmm. somebody who gives a shit, who loves our local businesses? You know, when I found out, for example, that Gilda's on the wharf was going to be shutting, uh, that's upsetting to me, right? That mm-hmm. business has been here for over a hundred years and is a wonderful family business in Santa Cruz. And that's happening everywhere. And so let, 
let's first talk maybe on the individual level for those of us who who want to make a difference and maybe can. And then, of course, it begs a whole set of questions around policy and the election and so forth. But what can you and I do as people who care about small businesses, businesses owned by people of color, businesses owned by women? I I think that, you know, shop locally, I think it's a really important aspect, helping these businesses out at the same time, you know, being very safe about it. So I know like the state of California has a new, the governor's office has a new kind of slogan, you know, this um, shop, shop locally and shop smart, right? So Mm -hmm. in other words, you know, really help support these local businesses, but at the same time, be really careful, right? Wear face masks, do everything you can to reduce the spread of COVID-19. That seems to me fundamental. Um, We need to get that under control. And we're going to have to all kind of pitch in to do safe behavior to try to get to that point. You know, washing our hands, using sanitizer, using masks, all of the things that, you know, that are out there. I think also we need to, at some point, resist this temptation to purchase everything online Mm -hmm. through large distributors. You know, at some point, we're going to have to really kind of push back on that and say, hey, I really care about having a vibrant downtown. Yeah. It's fun to walk around downtown Santa Cruz. It's fun to walk out on the wharf and go to all these different restaurants and see all these little shops. We'll lose that if all we do is buy online. So there has to be some valuation that in our minds that it's important to us. And it's nice to be able to walk around these little shops. And so we're going to need to purchase from them. Yes. You know, maybe that's not right now. If there's sort of safety issues, especially if you're a high risk person for COVID-19, but at some point, Right. We need to do that. And we need to make a kind of a, a concerted effort to do it. So buy local and be smart mm-hmm. and try not to. It's just, you know, uh, folks like Amazon, folks like Instacart and so many others have made it so easy to press a couple buttons and bada bing, bada boom, sort of magic happens. And incredible products show up from space mm-hmm. <laughs> as if delivered by a Star Trek transporter uh, almost instantaneously, you know, and I, like I think about, uh, you know, one of another beloved business here in Santa Cruz, the, the, bo- the bookstore downtown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want that bookstore to thrive, but, you know, I live on the east side and then you got to drive downtown and you got, you know, but to your point, if you don't do that, then how the, how the hell are they ever going to make it? Yeah, exactly. And they have a lot of these small businesses now are starting to set up online. And that's useful, right? Like, say, you can go to bookshops webpage and you can order a book there. I I haven't, you know, I, I think that they will mail it to you or maybe you just could drop by and pick it up. Some stores yeah. also have, have kind of like created the outdoor um, table and you just kind of yeah. show up and you just say, hey, this is what I need. And they will do that. So there are ways to do it in a kind of safe way. And do it locally instead of doing just online shopping. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I fully understand if you are elderly and you are really worried about getting COVID-19, you know, I, you, you can't blame someone for doing that, right? I mean, th- this is just an unprecedented time and unprecedented health risk. So I sort of see both points on it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We're trying to walk the line. I think like a lot of people are, right? Where... Um, we don't do things unnecessarily out in the world, mm-hmm. but at the same time, this shit started in, in February, March. Mm-hmm. It's a long time to be sitting in your house and to not go for a walk or enjoy the beach or go for a bike ride. Or so I think we're all trying to figure out how to physically distance, mm-hmm. be in the world, um, so support our local businesses. Uh, my wife and I go to the farmer's market. That seems mm-hmm. like a if you're going to go out and buy things in the world, at least you're outside and you're supporting all these wonderful local farms and bakeries and and such. Um, But it is tough to find that line, isn't it, Professor? That is. Now, I'm curious, we're in this election year. uh, I'm not a member of either party. Mm -hmm. I look at it and I go, you know, we have a president who um, at least says he's an entrepreneur, business guy, clearly. And I don't hear him talking anywhere near enough for my taste about entrepreneurs and small businesses. And, you know, we have a Democratic candidate who I don't hear really talking much about that either. And so, you know, I'll just say it the way it's in my head, if it's even if it's inappropriate. 
I'm kind of fucking pissed off mm-hmm. that the the plight and the success of small businesses, entrepreneurial businesses, and startups is not more centered in the conversation, whether it's around Black Lives Matter. I think, well, if you say Black Lives Matter, then Black entrepreneurs matter, right? Mm-hmm. And same thing for women and you know, over and over and over again. And so I guess with that, all that said, um, Professor, uh, where do you think we stand at the policy level, at the elected official level, uh, with understanding of these issues and with taking appropriate and effective action to make a difference in these issues? I mean, I think we need to have a lot more discussion and attention drawn on this. Um, I've been trying to analyze the PPP loan data. Yep. So I have the data for all, you know, five and a half million PPP loans that were distributed. So I was going to do an analysis to see, you know, what's kind of like the, what were the um, allocations across racial groups? Found out that the federal government didn't even collect the data. There's no information what? on race. So I looked at it more carefully and I thought, well, there's got to be something in here. What I found is that about 10% of the loan data that I have has race. So I looked into this more. And what I found is that they had asked the banks to report it if they wanted to. So what you find is that there are several banks that almost always report it. And a lot of banks that don't report it because they didn't know if they had to or, or weren't, you know, like it wasn't something that they even saw as something that they needed to do. That That's pretty disconcerting, right? That we don't even have that kind of information on this huge program. We're spending 600, over $600 billion on it. And that's just now, right? We don't know what the future allocations will look like. So it's just kind of frustrating that there's not more attention to, you know, doing this, doing it right, measuring it carefully, validating that we did it, checking afterwards that it has an impact. Um, It's quite surprising. Um, Yeah, I'm also really pissed off about this too, that we just have not figured this out. Hmm. You know, I, I think it was maybe 10 years ago or so, we were talking a lot about you know, Wall Street to Main Street and caring a lot about Main Street. And the, the kind of the what we were trying to say there is that we do care about small businesses. Um, now, that was at a very different time when they were doing reasonably well. And it was just more, you know, the concerns about Wall Street and the concerns about the Great Recession. Uh, and now this is a much bigger hit, clearly. So you'd think that this would be even more in the public discussion or the policy discussion and our political figures would, yeah bring this up constantly. I don't know what to say on it. I agree. I'm, yeah, this really angers me. (laughs) And so what would you like to see uh, a committed citizenry do as it relates to, uh, let's call it influencing, to put it nicely. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been a few points of late in my life where I body slammed some elected officials, but let's just call it influence. Um, to do the right thing, to focus on our small business, to focus on urban businesses that may be getting severely damaged by this and and understanding that uh, from February to April, 17% of Caucasian-owned businesses went dark and 41% of Black-owned businesses went dark. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be overly dramatic, but that sounds like a fucking crisis inside the crisis to me. Mm-hmm. How do we get engaged with elected officials and or want to be elected officials in this election to try to surface these as, as a critical topic uh, in the campaign, whether it's at the local level here in Santa Cruz with the city and the county, uh, whether it's at, at the state level in California, in our case. And of course, uh, there is this thing going on called the federal election coming up in November. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the key things are one shop. Make decisions about shopping, where you shop, who you shop from. Um, all of that obviously is important. And of course, with you know, health concerns, you know, in mind. And then two, definitely write, you know, members of Congress, local officials, and express your concern and your desire to have the government actually do something about this and talk about it and collect the data properly and you know and and be aware of what's going on. And then three is kind of the obvious one, right, is is vote. Get out there and vote. Make sure you vote and look at what the candidates, how they represent it, how they discuss it, what they're promising to do. That's, you know, hugely important. 
you know, don't say you don't want to vote because you don't agree with either of the candidates, you know, definitely find out which one is more kind of supporting your views and do it. Well, that sounds like very good advice, Professor. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I think that we've uh, discussed a lot of issues. Well, I really appreciate this time with you uh, tremendously. And even more than this time, I want you to know, Rob, I deeply appreciate your leadership in this area, your research in this area. I wish this was getting talked about more. Uh, I care deeply about these topics. And it, it makes me happy to know that an alerted man such as yourself has dedicated such a big part of your work to... Uh, uh, gathering this data and, and trying to put it into context and shine a light for us. And um, so thank you for this time and thank you for your spectacular work. Well, great. And thank you for inviting me to talk with you about this important topic. My pleasure. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Rob Fairley, professor of economics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Thank you so much, Professor Rob. And I also want to thank Lisa Nielsen, at UCSC for helping to make this episode happen. Thank you so much, Lisa. My good friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, lifefullylived.org. My friends at Otranet want to help you conquer your category. They've been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. My friends at Bonelec want to help you scale you with the power of a distant assistant. Check out bottleneck.online today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we deeply appreciate your shares. Uh, all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember, black entrepreneurs matter and women entrepreneurs matter. Support your local businesses and your schools. Buy John's Crazy Socks, listen to the Foo Fighters, and please tell the people that you love in your life that you love them one extra time for Michael. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Uh, be good to yourself. Take good care of your loved ones. And uh, until we're together again, follow your difference.